Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. Each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the As A Woman podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and REI, so I am a fertility doctor. And this podcast exists so that you can learn more about your body and be more prepared for your fertility journey. Today, I'm talking about the embryo transfer and specifically embryo transfer protocols and add-ons. And I'm going to preface this by saying I have had so many patients lately coming to me after failed transfers. And it feels like more than average. And maybe it's not, maybe it is just, you guys are finding me. But the reality is, it just feels like I am seeing people who are really not receiving excellent care, which is saying a lot because I know so many of my colleagues who are fantastic. But so often, somebody's at some practice that's just like a mill or just protocol and nobody is really looking at themselves, their body, or personalizing protocols to them. And it's really hard to know when to advocate for yourself and what questions to ask. And that's what we're going to go into today. I will also say that we all practice very differently and we all use the evidence and the bulk of our experience and the people who we have worked with and trained with, and that determines a lot of the protocols that you manage. And just like I say when it comes to IVF, you don't want to ever go into a doctor and say, I want you to do X, Y, Z, because you want them to be comfortable managing your protocol. You don't want them doing something on you the first time that they don't understand the nuance of. If you are not getting your questions answered correctly, then that is not a good sign. That is at minimum what you should expect. And I am not sitting here saying that we have all the evidence in the world for every single protocol or we would have mastered embryo transfer to an art. But understanding why your doctor is recommending something, having them be able to explain it to you, having a rationale, having a what comes next if things don't work, a thought process from where you get from point A to point B, I think that that is very important. A few housekeeping items before we dig in. Number one, 
I have transitioned fertility and the news to the newsletter. I usually say the weekly newsletter, but maybe it's more like bi-weekly. Anyway, you can sign up for the newsletter at nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter. And on the newsletter, what we're doing is talking about latest topics and fertility in the news. There have been so many that have been outrageous lately. I'm answering fertility questions, giving you some of my favorite recipes, and updating you on various aspects of things that I'm interested in, products I love, or things that are going on in my world. So that's nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter. Also, I want you all to know that you can ask your fertility-related questions every Monday on Instagram at Natalie Crawford, MD. Those questions for fertility's sake will be answered at the end of every podcast episode here, also will be answered in the newsletter and on Instagram. So follow along and ask. However, I would love it if you would call and leave a voicemail with your question. And that's because my absolute favorite episodes are your Q&A episodes. So you can call 657-229-3672. Again, that is 657-229-3672. Ask your fertility related question and we will happily answer it. Okay. Well, if we're going to talk about frozen embryo transfers and different protocols, first, we just have to give a brief difference between fresh and frozen. And I am clearly not talking about fresh transfers. What does that mean, though, if you are a newbie to this or you're just trying to understand the lingo? In IVF, how I explain IVF is that we are taking one month's group of eggs, getting them all to grow, taking that group out of the body, fertilizing them with sperm in the lab, growing out embryos to an implantation stage, which is a day five or six, and then we are freezing them. Very, very often we are doing a genetic testing before the embryos are frozen. That is called PGT or pre-implantation genetic testing. Then you're waiting on results. You have a period, the body recovers, and then you can set up to do a frozen embryo transfer. Now, when IVF first started, we really didn't have great embryo freezing techniques. Currently, most clinics use vitrification and vitrification is a fast freezing process, which has really high survival in the freeze thaw. Before we had that, we didn't have really great ways. We had a slow freeze and we had a lot of embryos that didn't survive. And so you would always want to put in your best one or two or three or more embryos immediately. In, and this is what a fresh transfer was. So if you think of day of retrieval as day zero or what would be your typical ovulation day, and then the next day is day one, and then you count out two, three, four, five, any embryo that was at the blastocyst stage on day five could just be put into the body and then other extraneous embryos could be frozen. Now doing a fresh transfer, you're not doing genetic testing. And even when IVS was first, first started, we didn't even have the right culture process to get embryos out to the blastocyst stage. And so you were seeing freezing of embryos and transfer of embryos at the day three stage, which had much lower pregnancy rates overall. So embryo transfer and IVF has come a very long way. Well, in a fresh transfer, what is happening is yes, you're not subjecting that embryo or those embryos to the potential freeze thaw. You're also not getting genetic results the vast majority of a time. A couple labs can get same day PGT results, but that's definitely not the norm. All right. So you would put the embryos in because really you were fearful that they weren't going to survive the free thaw and somebody's gone through all this work to get these embryos so you put a bunch of them in. Now what we know is that as freezing has gotten better and especially as we have been able to do genetic testing on the embryos, we have seen that some of the more 
previously stated risks associated with IVF were really associated with fresh transfer. And when we started doing frozen embryo transfer, a lot of those risks went down. And mostly when it comes to neonatal outcomes, meaning babies weren't born as early. They grew bigger. They had overall less stay in the NICU. They had less issues. And so this reasoning is because in the fresh cycle, a lot of times, especially if you're young and you're not really at risk for these things and you made a lot of eggs, your body then is going to have a very high estrogen and a potentially a high progesterone. And putting the embryos back into that environment is not normal. That's not a natural environment when a placenta is normally supposed to grow in. So normally, let's just think about what happens if you don't have to do IVF. If you don't do IVF, you ovulate, and that's considered day zero. That egg is going to be captured by the fallopian tube, fertilized with sperm on day one, because the egg only lives for 24 hours, and then that embryo is going to grow and develop into that blastocyst stage by the time it reaches the uterus around day five or six, and then it's going to implant. During this entire time, what is happening is as your ovary grew, that one mature egg, it led to a peak estrogen level of about 200 to 300 picograms. In fact, the stimulus to trigger ovulation is a persistent high estrogen of over 200 picograms for 50 hours. So that's quite specific. Once your body has seen that high estrogen, you're going to get an LH surge and that LH surge is going to induce ovulation. And then progesterone is going to be made from that corpus luteum in a pulsatile fashion, starting after it has rehealed after ovulation and progesterone will range anywhere from three to 40 nanograms throughout that luteal phase until that pregnancy does implant and starts making HCG of which HCG is going to rescue or constantly stimulate that corpus luteum and we'll see an increase in progesterone. Okay, so that's long-winded to say one, your estrogen's not typically more than about 300 in a natural cycle when it's growing the lining. And two, your body does not see any progesterone until after you ovulate, which in the IVF world, if you're doing an embryo transfer, that ovulation day is the day of the egg retrieval. So if you're going through here and you're having high progesterone levels, if your clinic checks progesterone during your stimulation, that can be bad for the lining. I don't really care about it for your eggs, but it can be bad for your lining. So if you're lined up to do a fresh transfer and nobody's checking progesterone ahead of time, huge, huge waste in my opinion. Now, to be fair, because of better birth outcomes, because of better uterine synchronicity, because I really like to be able to choose the best embryo, not just the embryo that's available on this day. And more than anything, you guys know, I am a believer in the whole plan. What is your goal? What is your goal now? What is your long-term goal? And in order to make decisions best in line with that goal, I need to know all the data. How many embryos do you have? How many are genetically normal? What is the probability those are going to make it into the family you want? And if they're not, let's go do another cycle before you get pregnant and get taken out of commission. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. 
Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. Everybody is going to practice in a different way, but personally for me, a fresh embryo transfer, there's, there's no protocol. Do you hear me, right? The stimulation, the growth of the lining is all based on the IVF stem. And then you're going to need some supplemental progesterone, but you're going to still have corpus luteums that are making some. So there's really nothing protocol-y when it comes to that. To me, my candidates for fresh transfer are young patients who have no indication for needing genetic testing. They don't have unexplained or recurrent pregnancy loss. They do not want a huge family and they do not have a high egg count so that I know they're not going to have these high peak estrogen values. That's very few of my patients. The other circumstance where I do a fresh transfer would be in an InvoCell. Same rules apply. You're not getting many eggs by definition with InvoCell. You are not doing genetic testing. And there's, you know, certain criteria that make you a candidate for InvoCell, of which tends to be your young with ovulatory or tubal factor as the only two indications. I guess we're absolute male using donor sperm. But that's not many patients. So vast, vast majority of my patients are doing a frozen embryo transfer. When we talk about frozen embryo transfer protocols, okay, so you're going to go through the IVF, have your egg retrieval, embryos are going to grow out, plus minus genetic testing, they're going to be frozen. That takes a week. Then, if you're waiting for results, that could take two to three weeks to get your genetic results back. And then you have to get a period. Maybe you still have to do uterine testing. So I am a believer that the uterus and tubes need to be evaluated before transfer. Saline sonogram, hysteroscopy, HSG, something in that realm. 
Now, after that, the basic types of protocols are going to be what we consider a controlled or a medicated cycle, or you're going to have a modified natural cycle. When you look at these two different protocols, the basic idea is that in a controlled cycle, we are controlling everything. That means we are giving you estrogen to grow the lining. You are typically suppressing the ovaries so they are not doing anything, not growing any eggs, not making any hormones. You are then going to give progesterone and you're not just supplementing, like adding extra bonus progesterone. You are giving all the progesterone somebody is going to have. I will say in a lot of clinics, this is the default protocol. And I'll explain why. The other option is a modified natural or natural cycle. Now, this cycle has that magic word natural in it, which makes a lot of people like it a lot. But what the idea here is that as you start to grow that egg in a natural ovulatory cycle, you're going to make estrogen. And that estrogen is then going to go and grow the lining. That estrogen, when it's high enough, will trigger you to ovulate, and then you'll have a corpus luteum that will start making progesterone and open and close the implantation window, and then you can transfer based on that. The standard day of transfer is on the sixth day of progesterone. So whether that means you start progesterone, you count that day one, and then you count out till day six, or you trigger somebody and then you start progesterone after that and transfer on the sixth day, or you're following a natural surge. That is the standard. So progesterone, remember, not the amount, but the duration, opens and closes the implantation window. And we now have very solid data that if you are doing a controlled cycle, so let's leave there, that we know progesterone needs to be given in an injectable intramuscular form. So progesterone in oil or PIO, which is not anybody's favorite thing because it is a big shot and it goes in your butt and it's painful and it makes you sore. It's not fun. But What we know is that you need at least some. So whether it is daily progesterone or it is alternating with daily vaginal progesterone and every other day injectable progesterone, your body needs some. And versus groups that had vaginal progesterone only, there was a statistically different pregnancy rate, meaning the PIO groups, whether it's only PIO or the combined, had much better rates than vaginal only. So no matter what type of controlled medicated cycle you're doing, we now know for sure when it comes to your progesterone, if your doctor says vaginal only is sufficient, that is not practicing the best medicine. Okay. So now we know, Hey, I'd like to have injectable progesterone. I want to do PIO. A lot of times there are physicians in every field who make a decision for you paternalistically deciding that they think you can't handle or don't want to do something. They assume the burden of PIO is too great and you're going to complain about it or not want to do it. So instead of explaining that there's this study to you, they're just going to give you vaginal progesterone. To me, you're a smart person. And if I say the odds of success are better with this, almost everybody is going to choose that, right? Okay. So that's going to be the second half of the protocol transfer on the sixth day, you're going to have at least some injectable progesterone, if not all, and that's what you're going to do for your luteal support. 
Now, speaking of progesterone, you have to continue that progesterone until that placenta has kicked in. So that means you're going to start taking it from the time you naturally would make some progesterone six days before an embryo implants until that placenta is fully grown in at the nine to 10 week mark. So that's a long time. Also from there, what we're going to do is continue any estrogen that you might be on as well. So that is the first part of the controlled cycle or the growth of the lining is from estrogen. Estrogen can be given in pills, patches, vaginal, and an injectable form. I'm a big fan of pills, cheap and easy. And if I need somebody to get an extra boost of aligning, I'm a big fan of a vaginal pill. It's the same pill, you just put it vaginally. It just works so nice, local to the source for the vast majority of patients. But sometimes you have to play around and every clinic's gonna have their start. And so I'm not gonna say one's better than the other there. There's just different circumstances. And I will say for an individual patient, I will see some people aren't getting the lining I like on one type of progesterone. And so then I change it over. The big difference in control cycles is are you suppressing and are you suppressing with anything? So option A, you call me when your period starts, you come in for your baseline, and I just start pounding you with estrogen, presuming that that high estrogen level is going to prevent your body from surging or growing a follicle and prematurely ovulating or making any progesterone. I don't like that. You heard the word presumably in there, and that leads to a lot of cancellation, and I am a controlling girl. You guys, if you're my patients, you're well aware. So then we have a lead-in suppression to prevent ovulation beforehand. This is very commonly with birth control pills. This is nice because you can start them after your cycle. You can wait for your genetics. You can do your uterine eval on them. You can stop them, get a period, but the ovaries have been suppressed. So you're not prematurely already sending out FSH from that last cycle. And then you can start to grow the lining with the estrogen. Very fine. I've done many a transfers like that. And then there is a controlled cycle with Lupron. So Lupron is a medication traditionally used for endometriosis. It's what we call a GnRH agonist, meaning it upregulates in the brain GnRH, which essentially has the brain send out all the FSH and LH that you have in the pituitary gland, which sounds crazy if you're trying to suppress somebody. And that's actually called a flare and you can utilize that in certain instances. But after the pituitary gland sends all those suckers out and has nothing left, then you're suppressed. So what you'll see people do is overlap the birth control pill with the Lupron or start the Lupron in the luteal phase. Therefore, you're not going to have that flare effect because the pituitary is already downregulated at those time periods. And then you can continue that Lupron through when you're on your estrogen if you want to do so, or some people stop it beforehand. I like Lupron and the data likes Lupron for potential cases of endometriosis, inflammation, adenomyosis, because those are hard diseases to diagnose. And because things like unexplained infertility fall in that category, I tend to favor as my default protocol for a lot of patients, a controlled cycle with Lupron, estrogen, and then PIO. And the reason why I really like Lupron for unexplained infertility, history of autoimmune or chronic inflammation, known or suspected endometriosis or adenomyosis. That's where I really like. That's not everybody. And then there's certain circumstances where you never ovulate, you don't respond, your schedule is hard, a controlled cycle 
you are going to stick to that schedule the vast majority of the time, and there's something very nice about that. There's also something really nice about growing a uterine environment that is different than a circumstance where maybe you've had a lot of loss, like recurrent pregnancy loss. So we all have different patients where we might choose different environments for them. If we know you have endometriosis, and especially if you have the combo of endo plus recurrent implantation failure. Remember that is rare. The rate of success with transfer of one euploid embryo is 65%. Cumulatively after two transfers, it's 88%. And after three, it's 95%. Meaning the vast majority of people are going to get pregnant within three transfers. And that's even if you do the same protocol and you make no changes. So a lot of the art's not really maybe in the protocol here, it's in the embryo. But that being said, about 5% of patients will have recurrent implantation failure, which is defined as having three euploid transfers fail. Especially in those circumstances, we do think there's a lot of overlap with maybe undiagnosed endo or autoimmune disease. And I'm a big believer and a Lupron suppression there. You can even do longer Lupron ahead of time, one or two months. You can even add in Lupron with an aromatase inhibitor there, like letrozole. And there have been studies that have shown improvement in recurrent implantation failure patients in the presence of quite a profound suppression. That's not usually going to be anybody's first-line protocol because it takes a long time. It's a lot more involved, and RIF, or recurrent implantation failure, is ultimately not common. However, it should be a tool in the tool belt that somebody can go to if they're not having success or depending on the clinical situation. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No my shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. When it comes to a modified natural or a natural cycle, in a natural cycle, you're just rolling. You're ovulating on your own. You have to follow that ovulation, and some clinics do it with ultrasound, and some clinics do it with OPKs. I mean, OPKs are just... My favorite thing ever when you're trying to get pregnant naturally and not my favorite thing, if you're doing an embryo transfer, I want something much more precise at this time of the game, but every place does it differently. Some places wait till you just naturally surge on your own and then time everything based on that. So they're checking LH or progesterone or they're waiting till you get that positive surge or some places like to do a trigger shot. 
same, same outcome. One's not better than the other. A lot of different variables. I'm a controlling girl. I like a trigger shot. I also am not the world's biggest fan on a natural natural. I just see them get canceled more often than not. There's too much at play. I like to induce ovulation, whether it's with letrozole or whether it's with giving some type of FSH. I just want to make sure we're getting to that outcome. When you're doing this, you have to monitor the ultrasound. You don't know how fast or slow somebody's going to respond. You don't have a calendar. You don't know the transfer date. You've got to be okay to just roll with the wind and be flexible here. That's the truth. Because by nature, a modified natural is mimicking a cycle. You're not going to want to do that if you don't ovulate, especially if you didn't respond reliably to ovulation induction medications. If you have lower ovarian reserve or you're older, we tend to see that the brain and the ovary are a little more stubborn and get a little funkier and may not have good synchronicity with when the follicle is mature and when the lining is. One of the downsides with this protocol is that the day you're ovulating, your timeline is set. I like how your lining looked or I didn't. It's too late to do anything. Versus... In a controlled cycle, if you come in for your monitoring and I think you need a little bit extra estrogen, I can push your transfer by a few days and give you a little bit extra estrogen. I can wait until that lining is perfect before I give you progesterone and start your timeline. So it's a controlled cycle. I get more control. I like control. But I think both of these have their place. I do really love a modified natural cycle. If somebody has a history of a thin lining, uterine scarring, multiple uterine surgery in the past, or ultimately just doesn't respond how I anticipate them responding in a controlled cycle. So if your lining was just gorgeous in your IVF cycle, and now it's much thinner or uglier in a controlled cycle, I'm going to say this might be a person who benefits from endogenous estrogen, making their own estrogen. I'm also a bigger fan of a modified natural in patients who we need to limit estrogen exposure to. So whether you had history of an estrogen-induced cancer, whether you have an estrogen-related blood clot, if there's a reason why we're trying to avoid extraneous estrogen in you or you shouldn't take birth control pills, then I really like a modified natural because you're not giving somebody medicine that's going to be metabolized through their liver or increase their clotting factors. And ultimately, if you can get the job done, it's going to be an easier and lower risk transfer cycle for them. So when we look at FET protocols, there's decision one, fresh or frozen. If we're playing in the FET, because I called it an FET protocol, then frozen embryo transfer protocols, now we're looking at controlled or a modified natural or a natural cycle. If you're looking at the controlled arm, decisions are, is there a lead in suppression? Birth control pills, Lupron, Lupron and pills, Lupron and letrozole. Is there nothing? How are you growing the lining with what type of estrogen? Pills, vaginal, patches, injectable, and how are you giving progesterone and how are you timing things? Remember, you would want to request some PIO in this transfer protocol. In a modified natural, the questions are typically, how are you going to grow the follicle? Is it going to be natural? Is it a modified natural? Is it a letrozole or an injectable FSH stimulation? Different patient circumstances, would warrant different things. Please do not have intercourse 
in a modified natural. I definitely have heard of patients who, let's say, have an embryo transfer and they had a little intercourse and then lo and behold, they're pregnant and it's not the sex embryo that they chose to implant and everybody gets all upset that maybe it's the wrong embryo, but it's not the wrong embryo. It's that they had sex and so they randomly fertilized an egg and because you're ovulating and you're getting that lining super awesome in the embryo transfer, you went and got pregnant. So please, we're putting an embryo in, don't have intercourse in this circumstance because especially if you're doing this for genetics, recurrent loss, something like that, let's not risk it. Let's just put the embryo inside. And then in a modified natural, because you're making a corpus luteum like you would naturally, you don't have to replace all the progesterone. You don't have to give those high levels of progesterone. You don't have to give PIO. So vaginal progesterone is sufficient here. Every now and then I have a patient who hates vaginal progesterone or who has PIO and they want to use that. And that and that's fine. It's overkill, but it's not harmful to have more progesterone. So that is a fine alternative. That vaginal is sufficient because that corpus luteum is making pulsatile progesterone based on the brain pulses. It's also normal not to check progesterone in that type of a cycle because your corpus luteum is making progesterone in pulses and it's going to vary throughout that cycle. All right, extra things. A few other things to think about. Baby aspirin, a lot of us do it. A lot of us do it if you've had maybe history of loss. No evidence that you need to do it for the vast majority of people. Antibiotics, you can give a burst of antibiotics. You can give prolonged antibiotics up to two weeks, which can be prophylactic for endometritis or chronic inflammation. No strong evidence that you need to do it. Also, doesn't hurt. Many of us do antibiotics steroids. Hypothetically, if you give somebody a short course of steroids, potentially does it lessen some of a possible autoimmune situation? Could it help implantation? Again, no evidence that it is needed. So some clinics omit it. No evidence that it's going to hurt either. If somebody's giving you longer term steroids and some people might really benefit from that. You know, I have patients who also have a rheumatologist who have other autoimmune or medical conditions. Long term steroids though, they definitely have side effects and you can gain weight and feel crummy and coming off of them, you might not feel your best. So just make sure you know how long you're taking them and why and what the game plan is. You can do Lovenox or a blood thinner with the transfer. This is typically done in the setting of a known clotting disorder found with recurrent pregnancy loss or context of having an estrogen-related clot in the past because, as we know, pregnancy is going to increase some of those clotting factors. I have been known to use it occasionally and unexplained recurrent implantation failure as a part of my kitchen sink approach. I use low dose. It's definitely not something I throw on everybody, but at times I consider... Could this be somebody who might benefit from empiric Lovenox based on their clinical history? This is where you really got to look at the clinical history. You want to make sure that the thyroid's in check, that somebody doesn't need additional thyroid supplementation to get that TSH less than 2.5. Make sure their vitamin D is optimized. Goal is going to be over 30. Make sure they don't have diabetes or insulin resistance. And if they do that, they're on metformin or insulin and you bring that hemoglobin A1C down into a range because we know higher levels have a higher association with miscarriage and also birth defects and other bad pregnancy outcomes. 
when it comes to things in the embryo transfer that become even more off kilter, there's natural killer cell testing, there's treatment with IVIG and intralipids. There are things that will cost you a lot, a lot of money and people will try to charge you money for it and they will make money off of it. And I have lost pregnancies and I promise you I understand your desire to do absolutely everything possible to have it be successful. And if there was evidence that it potentially benefited, if there was evidence that it benefited without harm, it would be added to the mix of things that people add on. There, There's no evidence for that. Those things are not recommended. Where I said there's like ish on aspirin and steroids and antibiotics, good evidence that those are not harmful. However, other things can be and they're expensive. So please just be aware and if somebody's recommending that for you, understand why if they're a super cheap clinic and your IVF was super cheap, and they have a thousand add-ons for their embryo transfer, red flag. Can we just all agree, red flag? And then there are other things. So if you have a lot of anxiety over the embryo transfer, you can have Valium the day of. That's not going to be harmful in any way. And if somebody has a persistently thin lining, sometimes you can consider adding in vaginal Viagra. That occasionally is an approach that maybe can help with the lining growing in a certain circumstance. My favorite is to consider, you know, a modified natural, see if they respond better to endogenous estrogen. Hysteroscopy is gold standard for uterine evaluation. So if you are not getting the outcome you want, if you're having a constant thin lining, if you're having failed transfers, recurrent implantation failure, somebody needs to look inside your uterus with a camera. And that's just the level where you are and the place that you are at. Camera inside uterus and make sure you're not missing anything. Remember that a hydrosalpinx is a blocked and dilated fallopian tube more common in the presence of endometriosis, prior abdominal surgery, history of ectopic pregnancy, history of gonorrhea or chlamydia, and in this circumstance, if you develop a hydrosalpinx, it can leak toxic fluid, for lack of a better word, into the uterine cavity, and that can decrease your pregnancy rates by 50%, and we want you to go and get that hydrosalpinx removed. So, If you're falling into that circumstance and maybe you have a blocked tube from years ago, especially if you're not having success, have they looked at your tubes? Have you developed an interval hydrosalpinx that can happen from the high estrogen of IVF? So just different things to think about as you're thinking about the protocol and the prep and what maybe should be going on throughout the course of choosing that protocol and making sure that you're doing the right thing. Last thing that I'll mention is the ERA test, the Emma, the Alice, BCL6. I mean, these are all very different things. I will say I'm not a believer in testing BCL6 or going and doing surgery to see if you have endometriosis, likely because I'm liberal in the application of a Lupron-based protocol and therefore don't see the point of putting most people through surgery to get a diagnosis just to end up doing a protocol like that anyway. That being said, surgery for pain or interference with your quality of life is a different situation. Emma and Alice testing or endometrial biopsy testing, those are not evidence-based for the average patient. Same thing with the ERA test. ERA is an endometrial receptivity analysis test, requires an endometrial biopsy in an entirely fake cycle. Initial studies showed that this might be the hope was like the cure for implantation failure, but their initial studies were done in the right patient population who have had recurrent loss. And when you apply the ERA test to people before their first transfer, not just was the ERA, maybe it helps, maybe it doesn't. 
it actually was harmful, meaning in the group that had the ERA done and followed it before their first transfer, they had lower success rates than the group that just had the transfer on the normal sixth day. This is probably something what we call selection bias, meaning that the population of which you do a study in really matters. And if you're applying a test to a different population, those results are not going to hold up. Again, IVF, FETs, reproductive medicine is so cool. Technology is constantly changing. We always want to stay up to date with it. However, we are seeing a lot of money put into the tech space. We are seeing a lot of people interested in femtech. A lot of people rolling out tests that haven't had the best studies done and a lot of people serving to make money off of it. So this is not a place where more is better. And there's definitely places where you can have harm. If somebody has this balls to the wall, crazy protocol with all these add-on and it's your very first time and they're talking Lovenox and IVIG and an ERA before your first transfer. Absolutely no, that should not be you. You should always be able to get your questions answered. 65% chance of success regardless of these protocols that we're choosing is not 100 and I will almost always do the exact same protocol the second time, making almost no changes if I liked the lining and I probably liked it because I wouldn't have transferred if I didn't. That being said, if your doctor says I'm going to do the same thing, that's okay. That's what the evidence supports. If you're starting to get concerned that there could be recurrent implantation failure, or we didn't like how the lining looked, or there was fluid in the lining, that's where you might step back and start to consider a different protocol. And hopefully this episode helped you have some of the questions that you should ask, and maybe a little bit more of an understanding about what's going through our mind as we're thinking through things. All right, well, we're going to get into For Fertility's Sake, FFS, your weekly Q&A section. Again, you can ask these questions on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD every Monday. You can also call 657-229-3672. Again, that is 657-229-3672 and leave a voicemail. How long after two back-to-back miscarriages should you recommend trying again? Honestly, as soon as your HCG gets to zero, you get a negative pregnancy test. There's no reason why you should have to wait to try to get pregnant again. With that said, we do recommend that if you've had two or more miscarriages, you get an evaluation for recurrent pregnancy loss, which does include an evaluation of your anatomy, uterus, and fallopian tubes, karyotypes of both you and your partner, testing for autoimmune things like a thyroid, for prolactin abnormalities, potential diabetes or prediabetes, and evaluating for clotting disorders. So if you have that evaluation done, I want to recommend that, but you don't have to wait to let your body recover or anything like that. What is the biggest cause of failure with an embryo transfer with a failed embryo? Well, that's timely. It's going to be the embryo. We like to think that genetically normal embryos are just absolute perfection. So if they don't work, it's got to be our body. But the truth here, y'all, is that we don't have a good way to evaluate embryo competency. Embryo competency means that an embryo needs to be more than just genetically normal. That's the low bar. It needs to divide. Cells have to form correctly and migrate to the right spot and organs have to start growing and everything has to happen on a timeline and metabolically it needs to be okay. And many embryos do not have this competency. This is a big area of upcoming research to try to see is there ways to identify embryos that are more competent, potentially by the media dish or factors they, you know, put into the culture. 
But studies consistently show this, that if you just continue to do a transfer and you just change the embryo and nothing else, almost everybody, 95% of people will get pregnant. So the biggest cause of failed transfer, even with genetically normal embryos, is still just the embryo's fault. The embryo doesn't have the competency to do the job. Can I take progesterone longer than 12 weeks? I don't have patients take it longer than 12 weeks. I will never say there's nobody out there. And if your OB or a high-risk doctor wants you to, that would be a different scenario. But from an IVF standpoint, progesterone's job is over when the placenta takes over and you've got to trust the placenta. It does a lot more than just make progesterone. So you've got to pull the progesterone away and make sure the placenta can function and do its job. I know it's scary, but after 10 weeks, the placenta is fully functional. And if your clinic's giving you progesterone until 12 weeks, they're already giving you a huge buffer zone and it's time to to just trust the process. I know it's hard. Is it possible for your ovaries to be too small to conceive? Mine are smaller than average. Well, yes and no. If you have really small ovaries, we are worried that they are either completely oversuppressed, meaning they haven't ovulated in a very long time. We see this after long-term birth control use. In stopping the pill, they should start functioning again. I've also seen it in states of menopause, which is the same idea. If the ovary is out of eggs and it hasn't been stimulated in a long time, the ovaries can be very small. The other circumstance is if somebody has had ovarian surgery, maybe a cyst or endometriosis in the past, you can see extremely small ovaries. Or if they have non-functional ovaries, which you sometimes see with certain genetic conditions, or they could be even considered streak ovaries. So this is a circumstance where I definitely would want to understand your AMH. I'd want to understand your medical history. People can conceive with small ovaries if they function normally, but ultimately I'm a little worried that something's up and maybe you have a low egg count. What is the standard of care for stopping progesterone and estrogen after a successful FET? So if you're in a modified natural cycle, you're likely just taking progesterone. If you're in a controlled cycle, you're likely taking estrogen and progesterone. Every clinic's going to be different which I suppose means there's no standard of care. But standard of care is going to be once that placenta is working to just stop the medications. I have worked places where we just cold turkey stopped it. I have worked places where we wean somebody off. That's what we do right now is we do a little small titration down and then stop it. Titrate down between the ninth and 10th week and then stop it after 10. You're going to see places start to stop it anywhere between the ninth to 12th week. All of the above is normal. As we said, especially in IVF and an embryo transfer, the pregnancy is so well dated. Zero need to continue that progesterone beyond the 10-week mark. In somebody who maybe has less well dated pregnancies, maybe you're using progesterone for different reasons, then potentially somebody might have you take it a slight bit longer. But again, no need to take it any longer than 12 weeks. I am not a fan of switching up your progesterone, meaning what you got pregnant on, the PIO, I don't like to then pull it and give you vaginal only once you're pregnant. I know some colleagues do, but my preference is if it is working and that baby implanted, let's keep on going. All right. Well, I hope you found this episode helpful and some of these questions answered helpful. Remember that you can ask your questions every Monday on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. You can sign up for the weekly newsletter at nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter. And you can call 657-229-3672 leave your voicemail for our fertility Q&A episodes. Thanks, friends. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new. 
and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD and check out the YouTube channel Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.